On my trips to Jerusalem, one of my favorite activities is to walk the walls. At the Joppa Gate, you can climb up on top of the walls of Jerusalem, and you can walk them around all the way to the edge of the Temple Mount. Today's walls are 400 years old. They were built by King Suleiman. They were built on top of the foundations of Nehemiah's walls. But even today, Jerusalem's walls project an aura. They appear noble. They're impressive and intriguing. Did you know that when God speaks of his love for Jerusalem, he mentions her walls? In Isaiah 49, verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Notice this. Your walls are continually before me. Did you know when God focuses on his people, he looks at her walls? In a sense, Jerusalem's walls were to the Jews what the World Trade Center was to our nation. Those twin towers were the epitome of American know-how. Those splendid splinters showcased our ingenuity and our affluence. They were a symbol of our strength and our security and our status in the world. And that's why they were targeted by those Al-Qaeda fighters on September the 11th. The terrorists wanted to shame us and topple our strength and shatter our security and shrink our status in the eyes of the world. Today, the vacant hole at Ground Zero remains a scar on our nation's psyche. And it's my opinion that star will remain until some structure is built in its place. But this is how God and the Jews who cared about the things of God also felt about the walls of Jerusalem. These crumbled walls were a symbol of Judah's humiliation. The toppled stones, the charred timbers were a Hebrew ground zero. They were a scar on the nation's psyche, a symbol of their defeat. And God knew that his people would never fully recover until the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. This is why God called a man named Nehemiah to return from Persia and to reconstruct these walls. When Nehemiah arrives, he takes a nighttime stroll around the city to assess the damage. The next day, he rallies the people together and he gains their cooperation he then divides the wall into small sections for each family to rebuild. And this rebuilding would have been a monumental task in and of itself, but what made it more difficult was that it was achieved through fierce and intense persecution. Opposition raised its ugly head. Two jealous and threatened Samaritans, men named Sanballat and Tobiah, led the way they worked as hard at thwarting Nehemiah's efforts as Nehemiah and the Jews worked at rebuilding the walls. The opposition begins in chapter 4. It so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. In one of his commentaries, Warren Wearsby writes, as soon as God starts to bless, the enemy starts to battle. And here they laugh, they mock, they ridicule Nehemiah. And we too, guys, have an enemy. In this world, Satan is the bully on the block. And he didn't like it when Jesus moved in and took over your life. He sure didn't like it when Jesus purchased the lot called your life and started clearing it for construction. Nehemiah's enemies employ a threefold strategy to derail the work on the wall. We'll find all three elements in this chapter. First is intimidation. Second is infiltration. And third is isolation. And Satan will use the same strategy against you and I. In tonight's chapter, we're going to see how Nehemiah countered each of these three strategies. Well, and Sanballat spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria, and he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Notice Sanballat ridicules Nehemiah's efforts. 
If a referee had been on hand, he would have given him a taunting penalty. British author Thomas Carlyle called ridicule the language of the devil. And it's true. Satan is a real trash talker. He tries to discourage us with put-downs and insults. Oh, you can't do it. Who are you to try that? Nobody likes to be laughed at. Words can wound us deeply. And Sanballat's example was contagious. For the guy standing next to him, Tobiah the Ammonite, said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. In other words, their wall will be so flimsy and so fragile, it won't even hold up the weight of a fox. Kathleen Kenyon is an archaeologist who excavated Nehemiah's wall. And she discovered that in most places, the wall was actually nine feet thick. It would have required quite a few foxes. And some very fat foxes at that. To cause that kind of a wall to collapse... You see, as usual, the enemy's taunts were not true. They were lies. Don't you know Satan is a liar? And the things he throws at you are lies and deceptions and falsehoods? It's been said, life is full of obstacle illusions. You see, most of our fears are just illusions. They never materialize, but they're obstacles that get in our way. Hey, the workers here, here built despite the fact that the enemy blabbered. Notice Nehemiah's reaction when he's attacked. It's simple but profound. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger. Before the builders. Notice Nehemiah counterpunches with prayer. Nehemiah prays a fiery prayer, you might say. He turns his enemies over to a just and awesome God. Notice as soon as the taunts begin, Nehemiah drops to his knees and he prays. I hope you know the Christian army is the only army that marches on its knees. Hey, we win more battles. We get more done through prayer than through any other means. Evidently, in response to his prayer, God shut up the enemy and he strengthened the builders. For Nehemiah tells us in verse 6, So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. And here's why. For the people had a mind to work. Hey, the people had a worker's mentality. They rolled up their shirt sleeves. They stayed at it. They weren't afraid to get involved and to pitch in. Nehemiah played a pivotal role, no doubt about it. He came with the king's letters and his lumber and provided leadership, but the people still needed to have a mind to work. Nothing gets done without the people's cooperation. And this is true with building spiritual walls. The Holy Spirit will help you and me to rebuild walls of morality and character and security and dignity, but we need to have a mind to work. If you don't do your part, the walls will remain in ruins. In every work of God, God has a part and we have a part. We can't do God's part and God won't do our part. God will do His part. He's faithful. We have to have a mind to work. We've got to apply God's word. We've got to pray. We've got to fellowship. We've got to worship. We've got to do those things we know will cause us to grow. We too have to get with the program. That's what happened with Nehemiah. It's interesting, the star at the Atlanta Olympics was Michael Johnson. You remember Michael Johnson? He won the gold medal in both the 200 and 400 meter races. At first, I thought it was strange that Michael Johnson's double victory was considered such an outstanding achievement. I'm figuring, hey, if a guy's that fast, why can't he win the 200, the 400, the 800, the 100, the whole bunch of them for that matter? But evidently, the nuances of each of those events and each of those distances are so specialized at that level that it's hard to compete on a world-class level in more than one of these distances at a time. And guys, that's not only true in track and field. That's also true in all of life. 
It is difficult to be world-class in more than one or two areas of your life at the same time. That's why we have to choose where we want to concentrate our energies, our time, our focus. Let me ask you a question tonight. In what do you want to be known as world-class? You've got to decide what you really want to be good at. Making money? Having a nice lawn? I want to have world-class pansies. Coaching Little League? Winning at fantasy football? My, I want to have a good fantasy football team. Keeping a clean house? You want them to put on your grave tombstone? She kept a clean house. Collecting antiques? Playing video games? What do you want to be good at? What do you want to be known as world class? Or would you like to be world class at growing in your relationship with Jesus? And being involved in eternal work? Building up the kingdom of God? Remember, you can't be world class at everything. You have to choose. Well, the people had a mind to work. And in verse 7, the enemy realizes, since he can't be intimidated, we might try to infiltrate. Now, it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Notice just because Nehemiah responded correctly after the first attack, it doesn't mean that his enemies went away. In fact, his problem got worse. They became very angry. Sanballat was the leader among the Samaritans, which were north of Jerusalem. His buddy Tobiah and the Ammonites, they were east of Jerusalem. Geshem and the Arabs, they were actually south of Jerusalem. The Ashdodites were Philistines. They were a people who lived west of Jerusalem. <laughs> you get the picture? He's surrounded. Nehemiah's opposition has grown. He's surrounded by these hostile forces, and they became very angry. They ratcheted up and intensified their attacks. But notice what he does again. It was obviously a habit in Nehemiah's life. Verse 9 tells us, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. Nehemiah kept praying. Now, don't ignore what Nehemiah will do. He'll set a watch. He'll position guards. He'll arm his workers. He'll establish lines of communication in the event of an attack. But understand, first and foremost, his first line of defense was prayer. William Cowper once wrote, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon her knees. Martin Luther said, My prayer is more than the devil himself. Nehemiah prayed, and he says in verse 9, And because of the enemy, we set a watch against them day and night. Nehemiah watched, and he prayed. You remember Jesus told his disciples, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. You know, when I coach baseball, I teach the kids to maintain an infield position. They need to keep their head up and their fanny down. You see, what, what happens is kids like to get their head down and their fanny up, and what happens? The ball rolls right through their legs. You got to keep your head up and your fanny down. And this is also good spiritual position. Keep your head up and watch. Keep your fanny down and pray. Stay on your knees. Stay alert. Stay smart. Stay open to God. In verse 10, Judah explains what made the enemy's threat so dangerous. He said, the strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. In other words, they worked around so much rubbish that there was the danger of an ambush. The enemy could infiltrate the city and hide among the debris and then rumble from the rubble. 
And this is also the problem in the reconstruction of our lives. So much debris, so much rubbish remains from the past. You know, the Bible has a name for this. It's called the flesh. Evil thoughts and wrong attitudes and bad habits and embarrassing memories and twisted perspectives. The Holy Spirit works in our lives to establish new thoughts and healthy attitudes and good habits and biblical perspectives. But the flesh is always there. Like Nehemiah, we're also rebuilding in the midst of the rubble. And it's the flesh that makes it easy for the enemy to infiltrate and ambush us and sabotage us and try to destroy the work. This is another reason to watch and to pray. Nehemiah takes more precautions in verse 13. He says, Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. But notice where Nehemiah sets his guards. Behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. Guys, here are Satan's two favorite targets. The foundations and the openings. In other words, what you believe and what you receive. Your beliefs and your influences. The foundations and the openings. You need to guard the openings of your life. What you take in, what you see with your eyes, what you hear with your ears. Don't invite the devil into your mind through the music you listen to or through the shows that you watch or the movies you go see. And don't buy into this world's belief system, its value system, for the world is headed to hell. And let me say this to you parents. Here's where you need to really focus your attention in the lives of your kids. On the foundations and on the openings. On what they believe and on what they receive. Keep that in mind as you work with your children. Well, Nehemiah tells the Jews, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your children, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And I hope every father and every husband in this room tonight hears those words. For men, the stakes are very high. Guys, you set the pace for your family. And if you don't set high standards for yourself and build walls of character and strength in your own life, you're going to be undermining what God wants to do in your family. The walls that you build for your life and the example that you set for your family becomes protection for your children and protection for your wife. Hey, this is why Nehemiah told the men to fight for their sons and their daughters and their wives and their children. I'm telling you guys, we live in a war today. And if you don't have a fighter's mentality, if you're not willing to fight for your family, Satan will come in and he will pillage the people you love. Sometimes you're fighting against the enemy. Sometimes when you got teenagers, you're fighting against them. You're insisting on what's best, even though they're not always receptive. But you got to be willing to fight, to hold the standard, to keep the walls high, to maintain the biblical perspective and the biblical values in your family. If you don't do it, who will? you got to fight for your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses, or Satan will just come in and he'll wipe them out. Verse 15, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Again, the plot was thwarted. The enemy went back, at least for a time. But they didn't retreat as much as they regrouped. That's why the Jews had to remain vigilant. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens, loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. Here is a helpful analogy for us all. What does it take to grow spiritually? 
What does it take to build strong walls in your life and in your family and even in our church? It takes this. A sword in one hand and a shovel in the other hand. You've got to build and battle. You've got to war and work. You've got to fight and fix. We need to build and we need to battle. Hey, so what if you build walls? Build, build, build. If you aren't defending that which you build. If the enemy can then come in and attack and destroy what you've built. On the other hand, I know believers who always are fighting. They've got a combat mentality. They love to fight. They're always finding something or someone to fight. They're anti this or they're anti that. They're never building. They're never cultivating any personal peace and joy and conviction and holiness. You see, verse 17 strikes the healthy balance. With one hand, they worked at construction And with the other, they held a weapon. If you want to grow spiritually, it takes a shovel and it takes a sword. Nehemiah built, he battled, and he took one more precaution. He bugled. Read verse 18. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Nehemiah responds to their intimidation and their infiltration, and now he responds to isolation. You see, his workers were so spread out on the wall That if one section got attacked, no one else would know it until it was too late. That's why they needed to keep open lines of communication. This is why Nehemiah bought iPhones for all of the workers. No, not really. But he does solve the problem with lesser technology. A bugle served as an early warning system. The workers were to rally around the sound of the trumpet and fight for one another. And guys, this is what fellowship is all about. We too need open lines of communication. For if Satan can isolate one of us, he can pick us all off one at a time. This is also what you need to pay attention to in your own family. Families today get so spread out. Brother's got a ball game. Sister's got a dance recital. Dad has to be out of town. We get so spread out that we're not aware of what's going on in each other's life. And Satan can come in and can work havoc in a person's life and the rest of us in the family not even know it. This can happen in the body of Christ as well. Hey, if Satan can cut you off from God's family, he has got you in his pocket. If he can isolate you, then he can discourage you and he can cause doubt and he can create confusion. He can let bitterness set in. The world and faith and temptation and even God look very different when you're alone. The saddest news I hear is to hear after the fact that a believer in the church was ambushed and we didn't even know it. If we had only heard in time of their struggle, we could have come. We could have offered encouragement. We could have provided help. This is why our discipleship groups and our home fellowships are so absolutely vital to the health of our church. Well, verse 21 tells us, So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. Notice this. Nehemiah's workers are so dedicated to rebuild these walls, no one went home. They were on duty around the clock. So neither I nor my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. You got to clean up every now and then or... I imagine the stench could get really bad. And so they did bathe. That was good. But they wore the same clothes. They didn't even go home to change clothes. This work on the wall had to be completed. And with this kind of dedication, we would assume that the completion of the walls was a foregone conclusion. But not so. A problem arose that created a work stoppage. Chapter 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, 
We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Now you see what the enemy outside the camp had been unable to do, the Jews inside of the camp had accomplished. They had stopped the work on the walls. And this time, greed was the culprit. You see, the rich were oppressing the poor. They were making loans, and they were charging exorbitant interest. When their fellow Jews couldn't pay, then the creditors started confiscating property and selling kids into slavery. It was awful. Remember Exodus 22 verse 35 had forbidden a Jew from charging his brother interest. You see, the work on the wall had created some financial hardships for many of the Jews. They had to take off of work in order to help Nehemiah. The influx of Jews into Jerusalem had made resources scarce and driven up the prices. Times were tough, but rather than showing leniency and helping each other, the landlords and the creditors were squeezing the people. And notice Nehemiah's response, verse 6. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. (laughs) I can identify with Nehemiah. He was a passionate guy. We'll find this out later in some vivid ways. You know, when he saw injustice and when he saw terrible things happen, he got angry. Sometimes I get angry. I get too angry. Here, he wasn't just angry. He was very angry. Tonight, the blind referee up there at the hockey rink called Mac on a penalty and (laughs) put him in the box for two minutes. And Man, I got angry. My wonderful wife had to point that out to me and call me down a little bit. I just get angry sometimes. Nehemiah, he got very angry. Recall, there were several occasions, though, when Jesus got angry. And I'm not putting Jesus' anger and my anger in the same category here, believe me. But, you know, it's not always a sin to get angry. Jesus got angry on several occasions. Remember, he got angry when the Pharisees you know, turned up their noses and, and when he healed the man with the withered hand and how their prejudice was going to keep him from healing him, he got angry. He got angry with the Pharisees and the money changers in the temple and drove them out of the temple. Jesus got angry a lot. Maybe not a lot, but enough. Paul got angry. Moses, remember, got angry. In fact, Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 26, he said, be angry and do not sin. I'm good at the first part, not so good at the second part. This is what I'm working on. This is what I'm striving toward. Be angry, be passionate, care about things. When an injustice, you know, pops up, be angry. It's an injustice. But hey, channel that anger in good and godly directions and in good and godly ways and sin not. There are some issues, though, that should fill us with godly, righteous anger. It reminds me of the little girl who was showing her friends the bathroom. And she pointed there to the scales on the floor and she made the comment. She says, I don't know what this is, but my mom and dad use it every day. All I know is when you stand on it, it makes you really mad. (laughs) A couple of seasons ago, we were at the high school soccer game and One of the parents made the comment, it seems our coach plays only the hotheads and the rowdy kids. And you know, that was probably accurate. Because anger is a two-edged sword. At times it can get you into trouble. But at other times it can spur you on and it can motivate you. I mean, Matt got a little angry when he got thrown in the penalty box tonight and sort of shut the door too hard and shouldn't have done that. But he spent four minutes in the penalty box thinking about what he had done. And he 
channeled that anger in the right direction. And as soon as they let him out, he scored a goal. Go ahead, go. Tying goal. That's what it was. But you know, a kid who, gets, who never gets angry. I mean, if you get beat time after time after time, or if you, some, people are playing poorly or things are not going, if you never get angry, you know, you won't be successful. You've got to have a certain passion. You've got to have a certain desire. You've just got to learn to channel that desire and that passion in godly and in good, constructive ways. Nehemiah got angry, but he got angry for the right reasons. He was a good leader. Now, verse 7 says, After serious thought, and don't just ignore that or skip over that. This is a mark of a true leader. After serious thought. Notice, he didn't act until he had given it some serious thought. He used his brain before he opened his mouth. Oh boy, if we could master that, we'd save ourselves a lot of problems, couldn't we? As the Italian philosopher once said, always use your noodle before you order the pasta. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. Nehemiah called the people together for a town hall meeting. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. I mean, had they come out of exile in order to exploit each other? That didn't make sense. Then I said, what, are you do- what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. No- notice Nehemiah had the opposite attitude. He was aiding the Jews, the Jews that were helping him. He, he was actually giving them money and giving them grain. And, you know, doing it at cheap rates in order for them to be able to afford to continue to help him. Please let us stop this usury. In other words, no more interest. You know, let's loan money to to each other, but let's do it without interest. Let's help each other, not hurt each other. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil, that you have charged them. In other words, give them back what you've confiscated and then add some, plus some benevolence. Give them a hundredth of the money and of the grain in addition to giving them back what you've taken from them. And so they said, we will restore it and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah makes them take an oath and illustrates a warning. He says, then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then all the people did according to this promise. But you got to hand it to Nehemiah. If he had not confronted this issue head on, it would have lingered. And it would have undermined the work on the wall. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. In other words, for the 12 years that he held the title as governor, he never drew a full salary. How commendable. Nehemiah was there to serve the people. The people were not there to serve him. He and his servants lived modestly, and they took only what they needed. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, heavy taxes, and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. What a tremendous example Nehemiah was of a good leader. Indeed, I also continued the work on the wall, and we did not buy any land. Notice this. Nehemiah didn't use his time in office to build up some cushy retirement or, or create networks he could take advantage of once he was, his term was over. He spent all his energy, his effort on the job at hand. He was all about rebuilding the walls. He says, all my servants were gathered there for the work. 
And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Nehemiah fed 150 of the workers at his own table, out of his own pocket. He wanted to help people who were helping him. He was there to serve them, not, not for them to serve him. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me. And once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. He helped. He showed compassion on the people. I wonder if uh, Creflo Dollar invites 150 people from his church to come and eat at his table out of his pocket. Or Eddie, Eddie Long or some of those other guys they're investigating. I guess we'll see. <laughs> Once Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken fame was on an airplane with a crying infant. Ever been there, done that? Flying on an airplane with a crying infant is worse than Chinese water torture. I mean, everybody was on a, in the cabin was on an emotional edge. And the desperate mother, she was trying her best to get the baby to stop crying, but nothing she was doing was working. That's when the colonel asked if he could hold the baby. And within seconds, he had the baby asleep. He was rocking her on his lap. After giving the sleeping baby now back to her mom, a fellow passenger made the comment, said, Oh, we really appreciate you for doing that for us. And that's when the colonel replied, it's the mark of a good leader. He said, I didn't do it for us. I did it for the baby. Hey, compassion was the real secret wet recipe that made that man great. And you know, it's compassion. It's caring. It's service to others that makes a true leader. A good leader in the church or the community or the home isn't out for number one to make his own life better at the expense of others. He cares about the welfare of other people. In verse 19, Nehemiah looks to God and not man for his reward. He says, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. He looked to God for his reward, not to people. In chapter 6, the attacks against Nehemiah grow personal. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors in the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. The plain of Ono was 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem equidistant from the Jewish capital and the Samaritan capital. It would have been about a day's journey for Nehemiah. The way the invitation comes across, it sounds very friendly. Uh, you know, there's been a little tension between us. But let's meet halfway and let's work out our differences. Hey, meet me in the plain of Ono. But Nehemiah, he smelled a rat. And when he heard the word Ono, he thought, you see it coming, don't you? Some of you saw it coming as soon as I read it in the text. So I'm not even going to say it. I can't help it. He said, oh no, there's danger ahead. Nehemiah had such good discernment. This was a setup. This was an ambush. Only a Yoko would go to oh no. <laughs> that was good. Only a Yoko's going to go to Ono. Nehemiah concludes in verse 2. But they thought to do me harm. That's why they really invited him. This was a setup. He replies to their invitation in verse 3. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? What a great response. Man, I like Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah has been commissioned by God to build walls around the holy city, not to attend meetings and get involved in irrelevant discussions. He knows his God-given calling, and he remains focused. He stays on task. Duffy Doherty was the former football coach for Michigan State Spartans. He once made this comment. When you play for the national championship, it's not a matter of life or death. It's more important than that. This was how Nehemiah felt about his work on the wall. What God calls me to do is more important than life or death. The glory of God is at stake. My life will mean more if I die tomorrow doing God's will than if I live for a hundred years never attempting what God has called me to do. A work for God is always a great work. And it deserves our single-minded devotion. Here's the point. The right priorities protected Nehemiah from danger. We make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy's attacks when we forget what we've been called to do, when we get distracted, when we come down off the wall and start doing things we haven't been asked to do. You could put it this way. Leave your post and you'll be toast. Godly priorities kept Nehemiah safe. Verse 4, Nehemiah continues, But they sent me this message four times. And I answered them in the same manner. Man, you've got to admire Nehemiah's doggedness. Four times he gets this invitation to attend these irrelevant meetings. And each time he refuses. Hey, if something's wrong the first time, it's probably wrong the second time. And the third time. And the fourth time. And the 400th time. Then Sanballat sent his servants to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. What blatant lies. Nehemiah has no desire to rebel against the Persians, and he had no ambition in becoming a king. He had carefully sought the emperor's permission before he ever left Persia and undertook this mission. Geshem is trying to coax a defense from Nehemiah, get him to come down off the wall. Verse 7. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come therefore and let us consult together. Lies and more lies. Geshem falsely accuses Nehemiah. And he starts thinking, if he won't come to the plain of Ono to talk to us, maybe he'll come to defend himself. Same trap, though. Wants to get him down off the wall. Here's what Geshem didn't realize. This was not about Nehemiah. This was not about Nehemiah's reputation. Nehemiah had already made the decision, I'm going to take care of my character and let God worry about my reputation. I hope you make that decision. This is about God's glory in Nehemiah's mind. That's why he's going to let nothing distract him from the work. During the early days of the Salvation Army, William Booth was bitterly attacked in the press by religious leaders and by government officials alike. And whenever Booth was shown another blistering newspaper article, the general would reply, 50 years from now, it will matter very little how these people treated us but it will matter a great deal how we dealt with the work of God. This is the perspective we all need. Don't worry about what people might say or think about you. Be concerned about what God will say and thinks about you. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, their hand will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Again, they were just trying to, to intimidate them, to get them to come down off the wall. Now, therefore, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Once again, Nehemiah sees through the enemy's scheme and he asks God for strength to finish the task. Nehemiah reminds me of the skunk family. The skunk family was attacked from all sides. And so they huddled together in a circle. 
They all got their heads together. They huddled together. They held hands with one another. Suddenly they bowed their heads and they closed their eyes. And the father skunk said, let us spray. That's what Nehemiah does. He denies the charges. He prays a prayer and he stays focused on the work that God has called him to do. Here's the key to success. Spray, pray, and stay. In verse 10, obedience to Scripture protects Nehemiah. The enemy hatches another plot. Afterward, I came to the house of Shimeiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahitabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night, they will come to kill you. He wants Nehemiah to flee into the temple to protect himself. But here's what he leaves out. Remember, it was a sin for anyone but a priest or a Levite to enter the temple. You see, Shimei is trying to scare Nehemiah into doing something that will disobey God. Nehemiah responds in verse 11, And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Nehemiah knew his Bible. He knew God's law. He knew that the temple was off limits to him. Before he ever discovered Shimei was an enemy operative, and that this was just a ploy. He knew he didn't want to disobey God. He would rather obey God and face the assassins than disobey God and face the Lord. Nehemiah refuses to fall into this trap for two reasons. First, it was not his nature to run. Notice he said, should such a man as I flee? I'm not going to run from anything. And second, he knows it's not his place to enter the temple. He knew God's word. This time, it's principle that becomes Nehemiah's protection. Guys, when you do the right thing, and when you make good choices, God can protect you. But when you step outside of God's will, you're on your own. And that's when you become prone to danger. Notice it's only after Nehemiah makes the right choice that he discerns the real intentions of Shimei. Verse 12 tells us, Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. But he didn't discern it until he had made the right choice. If we always saw beforehand how that saying no to sin and saying yes to God was going to benefit us, then it would be pretty easy to make good decisions, wouldn't it? But that wouldn't take faith. And that wouldn't take obedience. At the time, fleeing to the temple seemed easier and safer for Nehemiah, but he chose rather to obey God than to take the easy way. This time, again, biblical principle protected him from danger. In verse 14, Nehemiah prays, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. And this is the first mention here of these false prophets, and particularly this woman named Noadiah. She too, I guess, had been hired by Sanballat to create problems for Nehemiah. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul, our August, September, in 52 days. It was an amazing accomplishment for such a short period of time. In just 52 days, they rebuilt these walls. Reminds me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. In other words, God always starts what he finishes. And here he did it in incredible speed. And notice how Nehemiah's neighbors react. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, 
that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Now notice this, they didn't give the credit to Nehemiah. They knew that for this enormous task to have been accomplished in such a short period of time, this had to be a work of God. And this is the ultimate goal for any work of God. That in the end, the feet will be seen not just as a work for God, but as a work of God. That God receives the credit. In the middle of the 19th century, a revival swept across the island of Wales. People repented of their sin. Entire communities were impacted. A spirit of love and holiness permeated society. Bars and brothels closed down for lack of business. The whole country was impacted by the influence of Christianity. During that time, a preacher by the name of David Morgan was traveling home from church one Sunday with a friend. As they walked, the friend said, Didn't we have blessed meetings today, Mr. Morgan? Morgan answered, yes. And then after a long pause, he said, the Lord would give us great things if only he could trust us. His friend replied, well, what do you mean? David Morgan answered, he said, if only he could trust us not to steal the glory for ourselves. And then Morgan cried out at the top of his lungs, Psalm 115, a song we sometimes sing at Calvary Chapel. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. Guys, God will use this church to spread the love and truth of Jesus Christ and build strong walls in our community if we keep our hands off of the glory. If he can trust us not to steal his glory. It's my desire that when people look at Calvary Chapel, that they look past my efforts and they even look past your efforts and they perceive that this work was done by our God. Well, the wall is up. It's been built. It's done. It's finished. You'd think the enemies of Nehemiah would just admit defeat and go home. But not so. Verse 17. Also in those days... The nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Tobiah was an enemy. He had been Sanballat's sidekick. But you see, he had married into an aristocratic Jewish family. And thus he was keeping close ties with some of the nobles of Jerusalem. Verse 19, also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my works to him, words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Even after the walls were completed, Tobiah was still creating mischief. And he's going to turn up again in chapter 13. We'll find him there too. Nehemiah will deal with him. 